journeyed to Egypt and remained there until I tell you, for Harold is to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had uh, ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping loud, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. But then Herod died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard the ark... Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, and that he would be called a Nazarene. Good job. Thank you, Grady. Let's give it up, Grady. You can give it to Pastor Chris. All right, that's my buddy Grady. Great job, huh? Nice job, Grady. All right. <laughs> hey, uh, I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the children's pastor. So nice to be with you guys. You guys are varsity for coming day after uh, day after Christmas. Well done, everybody. Thank you for being here, uh, especially when you probably know that Pastor Mike's not preaching. So uh, I'm really glad that you guys are here, and it's just exciting to be able to share with you uh, this morning something I've been thinking about for a couple months. And then, so when the 26th opened up, I was like, I gotta, I gotta take that date. So. Um, I hope you guys had all the good feels over Christmas. Everybody have a good Christmas? Yeah? Okay, raise your hand if you're wearing something that you got for Christmas. All right, that's pretty good. All right, very nice, very nice. <laughs> well, I hope you had a great time celebrating. Um, you know the old, the old uh, movie, Christmas Story? How, did anybody watch any like part of a Christmas? Because you know it runs for 24 hours. Anybody watch part of the Christmas Story movie? Uh, okay, yeah, you have to. It's a little bit of... Now, I was 13 when that movie came out, and my grandma and I went and watched it in the theater, and I laughed the whole time. And uh, if you've watched you know, any part of that, or you just love that movie, like we do, you know, there's, there's constant... Um, quotes from that movie, right? You know, you'll shoot your eye out, uh, fragile, uh, it's a major award, or triple dog dare, or things like that, right? In fact, around our house, anytime glue is mentioned, we go, you used all the glue on purpose, you know, and you have to say it just like that, you know, to quote the movie. Uh, but I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this, in that movie, there's not one mention at all of Jesus or church or anything about the real Christmas story. It's kind of a funny, weird thing, but it's a great movie nonetheless, because we love good stories, right? It's a great, great story, um, but it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. So today I was thinking, well, let's talk about the real Christmas story. Now, today we're, we're finishing up uh, this Christmas series. We've been going through the first two chapters of, of Matthew, and you know me, like, I want some responses. So I got, we've got the kids in here, so kiddos, I'm going to count on you, because you know, like, when we do lessons over there, I, like, need you guys I don't have to tell you, but you're just talking. You know, you're always talking. So I need you to talk sometimes to me too, okay? So we'll, we'll do that. But um, now there's a lot of sweet, little, gentle Bible stories that you would read to your kids. Uh, maybe at nighttime before they're going to sleep. 
This is not one of them, okay? This is one you're gonna wanna read to your kids in the daytime. Uh, but it is part of the Bible's Christmas story. We need to be aware of it. We need to, to know kind of what's going on in this story. So kiddos, when you guys are in class, and adults, you'll remember this. I'm gonna have them put up the, the chart, the writing chart, okay? Do you remember this? When you're writing a paper, Okay, remember any, any, I know some of you teachers are like, yeah, yeah. So there's the, the, when you're writing a good story, there's the beginning, which is the exposition, and then the conflict, the begin, the, in the exposition, you're getting all the characters introduced. You got the protagonist, the good guy, the antagonist, the bad guy, and then you've got whatever conflict is arising. Uh, everything starts out really good, and then, oh, something goes wrong, and you've got the big conflict, and you've got the rising action, and it, it all goes up to the climax, which is usually the big battle or dramatic scene or something like that. This is when you don't wanna leave the movie theater to go to the bathroom, you know, make sure you time it well so you're not gone for this. And then there's the falling action and then the resolution. Anybody familiar with this? Right, you remember that? I remember when my son was, uh, you know, learning how to write papers, I'd always tell him, I'd say, listen, there's three parts to a paper. You're gonna tell him what you're gonna tell him, you're gonna tell him, and then you're gonna what? Tell him what you told him, right? Okay. Now, so the, the Bible is, of course, the great story. To me, the Bible is a narrative. It's, it's the great story that all other good stories are based on. It's got all the exposition, which is the, everything starts out great, right? The peaceful garden. Adam and Eve, the characters introduced. Uh, creator God, humans, there's a serpent. And so we're drawn into this world, right? Then you've got the conflict rising. You've got hero versus villain. The serpent tricks humans to rebel against God in the garden. How will God, this rising action of how will God win back the humans that he loves? Will humans choose God? And it all climaxes in this epic battle uh, where the hero, Jesus, at great sacrifice to himself, dies on the cross, is resurrected, wins the battle, the, the villain is vanquished. You've got the falling action where the people of God are living for him to tell the rest of the world of this great victory. And then you've got the resolution where God will ultimately vanquish evil and restore heaven and earth to paradise. There you go. Let's close. No, okay. no but, that, but isn't that basically what, that's basically the good, that's a good story. And every other good story, every English teacher is gonna say, this is how you write a story. And just so you know, the Bible is the first good story. It's the only really good story. And so as far as telling them, in Genesis 3.15, God tells them what he's gonna tell them. He says that, uh, that he tells Satan that he will bruise Jesus' heel, and, but Jesus will crush his head. Then the rest of scripture is Jesus defeating Satan of sin. And then tell them what you told them is revelation where Jesus conquers Satan and restores the kingdom. Now, this is all part of the gospel being the best uh, story. This is no accident. And every other good movie and story that we've been a part of, it follows this line. Think of, I'm gonna just run through them quick and you're gonna see them, but you've got Mufasa, right? Mufasa, ooh. You know, so you got Mufasa and Simba versus Scar. You got the Avengers versus Thanos. You've got Ray and Luke versus Kylo Ren and Darth Vader. You got Harry Potter versus Voldemort. You got Aslan versus the White Witch. Frodo versus Sauron. Uh, Neo versus, and versus the Matrix and Agent Smith. You've got Aladdin versus Jafar. You've got Kung Fu Panda Po uh, versus Tai Lung. And if you start getting into Christmas movies, see, I, I didn't even talk about you know Ralphie versus Scott Farkas because we already talked about that. But you've got the Who's versus the Grinch, right? You've got Kevin versus Harry and Marv, okay? You've got Rudolph versus Bumble, Bumble Snowman. Uh, Buddy the Elf versus all the negative Christmas energy. Uh, you've got Clark, Clark Griswold versus himself. Uh, and then the greatest of all Christmas movies, of course, you've got Bruce Willis versus Hans Gruber. Right, so... All of those stories 
follow this pattern, right? They all follow the pattern of, of, of the good story. But we know that Christmas is not reindeer and lights, bows and wrapping paper, presents, snowflakes and trees, lights, things like that. What I wanna say today is this, is that Christmas is an act of war in a great cosmic battle, the greatest imaginable. It is the top of the rising action where Jesus, the hero, comes to earth. It's the beginning of the climax where there's this cross and resurrection. And we now, after the cross and resurrection, are living in this falling action time. And it will be resolved, and the world will be reconciled, and every wrong will be righted, and every justice will be judged. Injustice will be judged. We'll have a new heavens and a new earth. And like we just sang, behold, I make all things new. So that's what we have to look forward to because the nice thing is, is we've read the end of the book, yeah? <laughs> like we know how this story ends. So today's message is, and this is the day after Christmas, is, okay, so what does the Christmas story, Jesus coming to earth, mean for the other 364 days starting today? So a big part of the Christmas story I think that we overlook is this idea that's introduced in the rising action is that we have an enemy that's making war against God and his people. C.S. Lewis has said that there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can, our race can fall about the devils. He's talking about just demons and Satan. He says one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So he's saying we either give too little attention to Satan or way too much. We don't think about them enough or we think about them way too much. So it's somewhere in between because we know every great story has an evil, powerful adversary, the antagonist, an enemy waiting, wanting all power for themselves, whether it's Darth Vader, Scar, Lord Sauron, the White Witch, Thanos. They want the power for themselves. But in the Bible, we've got these antagonists. You've got Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. You've got Pharaoh in Egypt. You've got Caesar in Rome. You've got Herod in Israel. And the Old Testament prophets, they would look at these violent empires of the day, where whenever they were writing, there were always violent empires, there always has been. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Persia, Rome. And what, the way that they picture it is you've got this human rebellion against God, starting in Babel, right? Tower of Babel. And they're uh, animated and empowered by a spiritual rebellion that's happening in the heavens. So you've got spiritual powers that are animating and empowering this this human evil, demonic spirits that are giving uh, energy to fight against God's plan and his glory. Pastor Matt Chandler has, uh, tells of a house church leader in Iran. I don't know if you know, but the largest revival, the quickest revival right now happening is in Iran to people coming to Christ. There, there aren't many there, but they're having this exponential growth. And uh, I just saw my brother-in-law yesterday. Uh, he runs a missions organization and he's telling me how uh, just around the world what God is doing. It's amazing, guys. You gotta, you're like, we gotta shut off our American news and start thinking about what God is doing around the world. He was telling me that they just finished, uh, his mission organization was running um, door-to-door. They sent a bunch of people in northern India uh, door-to-door. Um, they do it every year around Christmas. And he said they're gonna see probably, they're just counting now, that they're probably gonna see nearly 500,000 decisions for Christ in India. God is working around the world. So it feels like everything's falling apart here. Don't worry. <laughs> God's all right, okay? You know, we need to get our act straight, but God's fine around the world. So don't, don't think that, uh, you know, just because things are maybe not the greatest here, 
This is for us, for us to be the church. But uh, one of the things that this Ara- Iranian uh, leader said, he said, it's like the West is under some kind of satanic lullaby. You see, so much of our culture's attitude toward Jesus is this slumber of indifference and distraction. It's just, shh, shh, no, 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 no. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. You're fine. You're fine. Don't, don't worry. Just rest. Just go back to sleep. It's this drowsy haze that we're not realizing that we're in this great cosmic battle. So my hope today is we can wake us up a little bit and realize what's going on. Take the red pill, as it were, right? And so last week... Um, Pastor Mike taught on the first half of of Matthew 2, so uh, about how ruthless uh, Herod was. If you wanna know a little bit of that, you can go back and listen to uh, him talk about how bad Herod was. And we just read the second half of of chapter 2. You've got the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph, and now Jesus uh, fleeing, escaping from Herod to Egypt, and then they return after his death, and they settle in Nazareth. They probably use the gold and frankincense and myrrh to fund their escape. Now, imagine how scary this would have been, especially for Mary. Just think about the progression of what's happened in the last couple months. She's told by an angel that she'll give birth to the Son of God. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> uh, she's afraid her soon-to-be husband will leave her because they're not married yet. She deals with all the shame and gossip as her belly grows. She has to make the long journey in her last month of pregnancy to get to Bethlehem. There's nowhere to give birth but a stable. You've got these strange shepherds that are showing up and they're coming to worship. And out of nowhere comes some little boy who wants to beat on his drum. I mean, what the heck? No, that, not in the original, okay? Not in the original. But, um, and then you're told that they, they need to flee uh, to escape Herod. And they, so they're on the run now with a newborn to a foreign land. That's really scary stuff. Now, I don't know how soon the Magi would have left after Joseph got his dream that they needed to go. Probably soon, maybe that night, didn't waste any time. He's quick to obey. They leave right away. They go to Egypt. Now, Egypt would have been a very natural place for them to go. It's outside of Herod's jurisdiction. There was a large number of Jews that were there, that were living there, expatriates, maybe up to a million, they say. It's a great place for them to get lost, right? Maybe Jesus saw the, the pyramids along the Nile as a little boy. We don't know how long they stayed or, or uh, how long that money lasted, but they stayed long enough for Herod to die. They came back and settled in a podunk town called Nazareth. And so Matthew here quotes two Old Testament passages. And what he's doing is he's signaling to us. You know, when you're looking through a site and you've got, and the text is blue and it's, you know, you click on that, it's a hyperlink somewhere else, yeah? Well, this is, what, this is what Matthew's doing right here. He's hyperlinking to these Old Testament passages to tell us and fill in these details about Jesus' birth narrative. Now, kiddos, you're gonna have to stay with me. You know I like to geek out sometimes, so um, if adults hang with me too. You're gonna have to hang with me too because we're gonna nerd out a little bit. I hope that's okay. But uh, you'll remember, the kiddos are gonna remember some of this history because we like to talk about this stuff. But there are two types of prophecies, basically, uh, from the Old Testament. The first one is called a verbally predictive prophecy. This is basically where the prophecy kind of just straight out tells you what's gonna happen. Isaiah seven fourteen: the virgin will be with child and, will, and give birth to a son. That's pretty straightforward, verbally, yeah? Then you've got the second is typically, like a type, typically predictive prophecy. These would be something that is acted out in history, but it's to signal us, hyperlink us to a part of Jesus' life something that was gonna happen. Something, for instance, one would be Old Testament sacrifices. The whole sacrificial system that they would have is a type of predictive prophecy that would picture Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. That's why Jesus is the Lamb of God. Does that make sense? So it's a type, 
right? Well, these two prophecies in Matthew are types of prophecies. These are events that happened that are to kind of hyperlink us, our minds, to signal us to things about Jesus' life. The first one is in Hosea 11.1. 1. Now, Matthew is saying this in the birth narrative of Jesus. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay, this is why I need feedback. When else was Israel called out of Egypt? Exodus, thank you. Thanks, Matt. Now you can't answer next time. That's always the rule. If you answer once, you can't answer again. So thank you, Matt, that's good. But the Exodus, right? The Exodus, God rescues his people out of Pharaoh's Egypt. This is, what Matthew's saying, is a type to remind us, of, of, to let us know what's happening with Jesus. Out of Egypt I call my son. So he's saying the Exodus is to give us a picture of what's happening in the life of Jesus. Now there's a few key words happening in the Exodus, second book of the Bible, that are, I want you to remember for later, okay? When, when, when they're describing uh, the Israelites coming out of Egypt across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into the promised land. A couple things that they're said, it says that God uses, uh, he takes them up on eagle's wings. Okay, remember that. And God protects them through the wilderness. And then it says that the Red Sea, God made the earth swallow up the Egyptians. Okay, those three terms. Eagle's wings, wilderness, swallow up. We'll get back to that. But by quoting Hosea, what Matthew's doing is hyperlinking their minds to think, huh, Jesus, Jesus' birth is like an exodus. It's God bringing us out of slavery. Okay, you with me? All right. Second prophecy is Jeremiah 31, 15. It says, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, kiddos in the audience, you guys are with me, right? Remember we do this. So parents, you can do it too. You got, everybody's gotta do it. Okay, we're just, this is how we do it. Okay, we, we're talking about the generation. So we go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, okay? All right, you'll get this, parents, come on. All right, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. One more time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's how we learn it. Okay, so Abraham, father of the Jews, his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, all right? Jacob's name was, tra was changed to Israel. So when we say Israel, we're talking about Jacob, essentially. His name was changed. Now, who was his wife? right there. Rachel, thank you. Okay. His, Jacob's wife, thank you. That's good. Jacob's wife is Rachel. So Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So you can say that Rachel's children are Israel's children. Makes sense, right? Okay. So Israel's children are the people of God. So when it talks about Rachel's children, it's talking about the people of God. So this one's a little tougher now. Matt, you can't answer. This one's, uh, so when did Israel have families that would have been separated and torn apart where there would have been great weeping? Do you know what, Damien? Okay, I'm gonna just help you out here. Do you know? It's a little later than, in history than that. It's, it's the exile, okay, familiar with the exile. Okay, so the, this passage, the first one was referring to Exodus. This passage is referring to the exile, okay? So, I know Matt, you knew it, sorry. <laughs> okay, but this would have happened around 600, 500 BC. Here's what happens. After God brings the Israelites out of 
Egypt through the Exodus, cross the Red Sea, into the promised land. He tells them, if you would just serve me and love me, this will be your land forever. But if they rebelled, he would send them to exile. Did they obey God? No, they did not. So a couple hundred years after the Exodus, God sends them, because they were disobedient, he sends them in exile. I call it a 70 year timeout. <laughs> they were disobedient, go to your room. Instead, it's go to Babylon. 70 years, they go to Babylon. God brings Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, if you've heard that crazy name, um, to Jerusalem. They destroy Jerusalem in 586 BC. This is where, this is, that was when Jeremiah was around. So this verse, Jeremiah 31, 15, this is where this comes in. It's written about the Babylonians coming to Jerusalem and attacking and destroying Jerusalem. It, Rachel's children, all the Israelites, the people of God. And so the Jews, this is what happened at that time. The Jews were taken and held captive in a place just five miles north of Jerusalem. They destroyed, burned the city, brought all the people out, moved them five miles north to a city. What do you think that city was called? Ramah. From Ramah, families were separated, sold into slavery, and dragged away into captivity in Babylon. I want you to picture the scene. Parents saying goodbye to children as they're sold off to different people. Imagine the weeping and the wailing. Grandparents and the sick have to stay behind because they're too old and feeble for the journey. Everybody else gets brought in captivity out hundreds of miles away to Babylon. And so this picture is Rachel it's Jeremiah 31, it's contemporary to the time. Rachel is pictured as Israel's mother, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, lamenting the loss because they, were, they are no more. They're gonna die in Babylon. Okay. So Rachel is buried in Ramah. Hundreds of years before the exile, many years before, uh, before all of this, her, her grave is the third holiest site for Jews, it's five miles north of Jerusalem. So you've got Ramah, then five miles south is Jerusalem. Five miles south of that is Bethlehem. So perhaps when Herod is having all the babies in the region killed, maybe it extends 10 miles up to Ramah. And those mothers are weeping for their children as well. Rachel died on her way to Bethlehem giving birth to a son, her last son, Benjamin. And so Ramah becomes this place of great weeping, but also a source of hope for the future because she was told by the midwife as she's giving birth, she had a son. So there's a lot of symbolism here, right? So imagine the timeline that you've got Rachel, wife of, of Jacob. Then hundreds of years later, you got the Exodus. Then hundreds of years later, you got the exile. And then hundreds of years later, you got Herod. That's the timeline. So fast forwarding 600 years from the exile to Jesus' birth, Herod is killing these babies in Bethlehem. Again, Rachel, as mother of the Israelites, is weeping the loss of now these literal children in Bethlehem and Ramah and Jerusalem, very close to her burial spot. And just as the Israelites wept at the exile, now they're weeping at Herod's command. And so Matthew says, there's, at Herod's command, there's this great weeping, just like hundreds of years ago when everybody was sent into exile. The hyperlink is this. Thanks for staying with me through that. <laughs> I hope that that, if you're a Bible geek, you get into this stuff, you like it. Because Jeremiah, Jeremiah 15 is what Matthew quoted. And it would have hyperlinked their mind to say, oh, but I remember verse 16 and verse 17. Because 
at the exile, when all these families were being separated, look at the very next verses. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your, ears, your eyes from tears, for they, your children, shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. See, they would have known, when, when Matthew's quoting Jeremiah 31, they would have thought, oh yeah, but remember there's verse 16 where there's hope for a future. God will bring them back from exile. God will restore us back to him after our sin has kept us away. And so what is the hope for our future to Matthew's readers 600 years later after Herod's slaughtering all these babies? The hope is, well, out of Egypt, I called my son. Reminds us of all the promises of the exile. And then Rachel weeping for her children reminds us of all the promises. Uh, I'm sorry, the first one is Exodus. This one is exile. That there is hope for the future. That God will bring us back from our exile from him. Later in Jeremiah 31, look at what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. Tell me if you wouldn't want this. I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they all know me. And from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So when Matthew is talking about these babies dying and Rachel weeping, there's hyperlinked with that, this promise that he will be our God and we will be his children and he will remember our sin no more. He's saying this birth of Jesus is gonna take us out of slavery and oh, we've got all these promises that, that he will be our God and we will be his children and he will remember our sins no more. That's pretty sweet stuff, isn't it? See, Matthew is calling our thoughts something higher. That even from the horrific story of dozens of babies being killed by this murderer enemy king, there's hope of a larger story because now the child hero is born and he will end all king, evil kings and kingdoms. And so for his readers, Matthew's readers, they're living under Roman occupation. The, the, the city of Jerusalem is gonna be destroyed again by the Romans in just a few years in 70 AD. And they're longing for this Messiah king. So how does all this fit into the plotline story graph? How does it fit? Well, We've got a hero now that is going to rescue the people, vanquish the villain at great sacrifice to himself and set up a new kingdom. And Herod is just another tyrant in a long line of human powers who are trying to ruin God's plan and kill his people. He had Pharaoh in Egypt. He had Nebuchadnezzar um, during the exile, Pharaoh during the exodus. Those are just two more in that long line. You've got Hitler in that same line trying to destroy God's people and God's plan. You've got modern terrorists. You've got all these things. It's almost as if there's an evil adversary out there, a cosmic power behind it all, an antagonist with his own plan to steal God's people, kill God's son, and destroy his people Israel. Doesn't that fit the whole theme of the story? You see, the adversary and the conflict are vital to the story. But here's the thing. I think it says something to us why we look around and we see life being so difficult. Because we wonder why, you know, why does the world have so much anxiety and depression 
and broken relationships and toil and insecurity and disease and death and injustice. And see, you should be surprised by all those things, the turmoil and the pain, if you thought that life was about being happy. Our culture pushes that on us all the time. Just seek your own comfort. Make your life as easy as possible. Shh, 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 shh. no, 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 go back to sleep. Be happy, live your best life now, hakuna matata, right? So you should be surprised if that's the way you think. But pain interrupts that comfort and we all feel it. And we don't know what to do with it. But see, you shouldn't be surprised by all the struggle if you thought your life was about holiness. See, the reason I think that we're surprised by life's difficulties is that we see them as this inconvenience. And we don't realize that we live in a universe at war, this cosmic war. And so, and we live like we don't know what Satan's up to. <laughs> see, in, first, in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And the word there is schemes. Imagine Satan with his schemes. He's saying, don't be ignorant. And Jesus tells us, uh, Satan is the father of lies. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he does that now by, with us trying to lull us back to sleep. No, 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 don't fuss, don't fuss. Shh, just close your eyes, go to sleep. Could it be that Satan's schemes, one of them at least, is to make us think that our life should be pain-free, without struggle, only to make me happy? Or that Christmas is about shiny lights, presents, food, and trinkets? No, no, no. Jesus' birth is an act of war. <laughs> it's a D-Day attack into enemy territory to reclaim it from a tyrant. And so Eugene Peterson, there's a fuller quote later I'll give you, but he says, Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. Because Satan is like this wounded animal backed into a corner now that he's being attacked as we're reaching the climax of the story. And so the setbacks of struggles that we feel are all part of this rising action and conflict in the plot of the story between good and evil. And Christmas is Jesus the God-man coming to earth, cross and resurrection, the climax of the story. And what that says is that your life matters because you are a character in the drama and you are part of a greater narrative. And you have a powerful God, a defender and a protector who entered into this world and he suffered also. So kiddos, what do we always say? I can trust God no matter what. Parents, you wanna try it? I can trust God no matter what. Remember in Genesis 3, 15, remember, tell them what you're gonna tell them. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is God speaking to Satan, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He said, there will be enmity and strife and war, but Jesus at the cross will crush your head. So whereas Genesis is the introduction to the story, Revelation's the conclusion. The Revelation's the tell them what you told them. And, and so I'm gonna read to you a very different retelling of the Christmas story, okay? It's John, the Apostle John, receiving a revelation of kind of this vision of, of history. And it's the summary of this great story narrative. Now this is a very different kind of Christmas, okay? I want you just to, just to just take it all in because it's a very dramatic, it's apocalyptic literature. It, it sounds kind of crazy, but it sounds like a great movie. Okay, look at what it says. Revelation chapter 12. And this is, again, just a summary of the whole arc of history. He says, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman. Now that woman's not Mary, it's Israel. It's Rachel's children. 
clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown with 12 stars. That's reminiscent of Jacob's son, Joseph. Remember he had the cloak and he had the vision of the 12 stars bowing down to him. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains at the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Satan in the garden was a serpent. Now he's a dragon. I guess he hit puberty. I don't know. Um, sorry, that was bad. Sorry, that was bad. Uh, that's not in my notes. That's what I get for leaving my notes. Uh, no. Um, but with seven heads, which is authority, and ten horns, which is strength, and, and on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Remember the story of the third of the angels being caught up in his deception. And cast them to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, again, Israel, the people of God, who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child. Kiddos, what's his name? Jesus, yeah. Just say Jesus. Remember, you say Jesus. You can't go wrong. You're going to get it right half the time if you just say Jesus. Okay, yes, Jesus. She gave birth to a male child and one who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness. Harken back to the Exodus where she had a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. There's this great war happening in heaven. Now remember, clear enmity here between the woman and the dragon. The dragon hates the people of Israel and makes war with her. Now, historically, when a culture turns away from God, he gives them, and gives them over to their sin. When, when cultures turn from God, women and children suffer the most throughout history. There's a theologian named Stephen Dempster, and he says that the theme of the Old Testament is the woman against the beast. Eve versus the servant, serpent. Tamar versus Judah. Moses' mother versus Pharaoh. Deborah and Jael versus Sisera. Esther versus Haman to save the Jews. And he says that, that all of these are women in a battle to preserve the people of God. And a couple of weeks ago, you know, Pastor Mike was going through the genealogy of Matthew 1, talking about the importance of all these women in Jesus' line. And all of us, you know, of course, Satan hates all of us, but there's this particular battle against you ladies and children that he wants to devour. And I don't need to say it here with all the kids present, but I'm sure you're all aware of how our culture attacks the image of God in motherhood and children. It's a front line in this battle. Verse 8, he says, But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And a great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and the angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And look at this, I love this. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He's a wounded animal. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth and he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, he's after the people of God. But the woman who was, who was, uh, but the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, like in the Exodus, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, like in the Exodus, to a place where she would be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water out 
uh, like a river out of his mouth, kind of like the Red Sea. Water is symbolic of judgment, like Noah's flood and, and things like that, to sweep, over, sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. This crazy scene, right? Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. We are at war. He hates God's people. On, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold the testimony of Jesus. So there's three schemes of, the, of Satan right here in these verses. Accusation, deceit, and death. Accusation, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying, um, now the salvation has come. And he's, you know, it's for the accuser of our brothers, he calls him. Satan's big tactic is accusation, is to get you agree, to agree with his accusation. See, if he can get you to agree that you're never good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, rich enough, protective of your kids enough, and, and you, you're dealing with all kinds of insecurity, you'll start thinking that God doesn't actually love you because you're not performing well enough. And if you would just get your act together, then God would love you. That's his accusation. And if you agree with him, then you're out of the fight. The second is deceit. He comes at us with deceit. He's called the deceiver of the whole world. <laughs> now this isn't just bad information. This is where he's attacking our emotions, our mind, our will. And uh, we make so many decisions, you know, out of our emotional state, how we're feeling in the moment, right? And he twists all that to, to control our will. And so our false beliefs about God, that he's angry with you all the time, that he's not for you, he's against you, that, that he's distant and cold or that he's disappointed in you, those are deceits that Satan will throw at you to get you out of the fight. And then the last of his, in verse four, is uh, death, where he says he's gonna devour the child. Um, Satan scares us most, of course, with death. It's the point of the whole story, but death has lost his sting. Death has no victory, right? So Jesus overcomes death with the power of the resurrection and we'll be resurrected one day too. And so if I'm gonna be resurrected just as Christ was resurrected and I have a God that's protecting me, what can people do to me? You gonna kill me? Okay. To, to die is gain. I get to be with Christ. So how do the people though in this war gain victory? Do we gain it by fighting back? Look at verse 11. And they, this means people of God, us, they have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. You guys, the way that we remove accusation is the blood of the lamb because the accusation's been removed by the cross. The way that we remove deceit is the word of the testimony, God's word. Coming when it's true, when deception is not. And the way that we remove the fear of death is to love not your lives, even unto death. To say that if I die, I'm with Christ. You see, we have victory in this war already. We know the story. We know the end of the book. And did you notice that six times in that passage in Revelation, it says that the enemy will be thrown down? Did you, did you kind of catch that? Elias says he was gonna be thrown down. Okay, now the word in Greek for thrown down, you're gonna love this if you love slang. You know what it means? It means he gets bounced isn't that awesome? I just picture like Satan getting bounced like Poe and Kung Fu Panda, like boom, like that, you know, just, I don't know. I just, but Satan gets 
bounced out of heaven. I just think that's so awesome. But the great drama here gets resolved and there's victory for our hero. So here's the, the other part of the Eugene Peterson quote. He says, the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness, nor domesticated into drabness, nor commercialized into worldliness. John's revelation to take Jesus in a manger attended by shepherds and wise men and put him in the cosmos attacked by a dragon. Get this, he says, the consequence of our faith is that we are fortified against intimidation. Fortified against intimidation. Our response to the nativity cannot be reduced to shutting the doors against a wintry world, drinking hot chocolate, and singing carols. Rather, we are ready to walk out the door with, as one psalmist put it, high praises of God in our throats and two-edged swords in our hands. We're gonna go out with the word of the testimony and the blood of the lamb because the world is at war. Now, I can say this to you guys because you're the committed ones coming to church the day after Christmas. And I'm really glad you're here. Um, and this is our church family, right? So let's talk. Um, listen, you guys know this, and I don't have to tell you this, but just coming on Sunday mornings is not enough to fight a war. We weren't called to attendance. We're called to discipleship. We're called to model our lives after our master Jesus, to order everything around him. This is more than just believing the truths in your heads. This is letting the Spirit transform our lives. This is about getting serious about spotting Satan's schemes and putting on the armor of God and defending ourselves. Because as Peterson said, the consequence of our faith is that we are fortified against intimidation. So we always get told this. Uh, some of you have heard me say this before, but we're always told to practice what you preach, right? Practice what you preach. But listen, you're doing that today. You're in church the day after Christmas. You are practicing what you preach. What I'm telling you, and I'll encourage you today, is to preach what you practice. Because you are practicing it. So now go preach it. But we get, we need a fortitude against intimidation to go preach what we're practicing already in our faith. And if it's not clear yet, we're on the winning side of this thing. Okay, like, I don't know what we're so intimidated about. Like, we win. <laughs> We've watched the end, we recorded the game, and we're, we know what the score is, we're just now watching it play out, right? It, th we win this whole thing, and the enemy, of course, he's gonna fight, he's gonna punch, we're gonna get hit in the head once in a while, and we're gonna take some body shots. But we win. So I've got this picture here of these two guys that are gonna spend the day in the sand. Okay, there you go. Two guys gonna spend the day in the sand. Now, again, if you think that your life is supposed to be about your comfort and fun and happiness, then you'll think that life is a beach. You'll be asleep in Satan's slumber and you'll justify whatever you wanna do to say, I just deserve to be happy. As Mike said last week, uh, the enemy will convince you that my life is my own and I'm my own king. But if you know that you're a part of a cosmic battle, you're gonna approach the battle quite differently, right? You're gonna gear up. <laughs> Jesus is our king. Your life is not your own. You're part of a larger story that matters for all of eternity. Gear up, okay? So most people, when they write a story, you know, and they follow the little trajectory and write a story, the hero wins with all the superior military might. They're just stronger and faster and better and stronger, and, and they're better at the fighting than, than um, 
the, uh, the enemy or whatever. But that's not our strategy for victory. Remember, verse 12 of Revelation, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives even unto death. And so how do we fight? Well, not like the world does or not like Satan does, not with accusation, not with deceit. The Bible tells us we have the belt of truth buckled around our waist. Truth holds everything together like the belt does. We have the breastplate of righteousness to protect our heart and our emotions. Righteousness protects that. A feet uh, fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So ready to share the good news, ready to preach what we practice. The shield of faith, it says we can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. So anytime we're attacked, we've got the shield of faith. We've got the helmet of salvation, which is my favorite. So when you know that you're saved, it protects your head, your thoughts, and you're not afraid because you know that you belong to him. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which is the only offensive weapon we have, the word of the testimony. And so there's a baby born in Bethlehem. It's an act of combat against the devil's schemes. First John 3, 8 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. <laughs> he did not come to have cookies and presents. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And so it's your choice. You can engage, choose to engage and fight the good fight by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony, or you can choose just to fall back to sleep. Shh. And just be indifferent to this cosmic struggle that's happening all around you. Shh, little one. Kiddos, what kind of choice should you make? The wise choice. You guys wanna try that one? What kind of choice should you make? Thank you. So our hero arrives as a defenseless baby. He's killed as a criminal, bloody as a, as a sacrificial lamb, and the church with the word of testimony willing to give our lives in death to him. That is a very different kind of Christmas, no? That's waking up from our little lullaby, opening our eyes from this slumber instead of just laying our head back on the pillow for 2022, all right? Um, shameless plug, I have a class called Gospel University that's on Wednesday nights where we answer a lot of these kinds of questions and stuff. Love to have you come, we're starting up in January. All right, let's pray.